Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad that you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Song of Solomon, which is one of the most interesting books of the Bible, and we think that you will find it interesting too. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. This morning, I, th- I thought we'd get started by just by reading the Word of God together, and it's up on the screen behind me. Um, we're going to read from the Song of Songs, right? reading chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, and uh, there's, just, uh, there's actually two slides back-to-back here, but could, you, could we read these out loud together? Just This is the Word of God, okay? Who is this sweeping in from the desert, leaning on her lover? I aroused you under the apple tree where your mother gave you birth, where in great pain she delivered you. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. And that's the word of God. Today's a great day because we're going to begin a summer series of study in the Song of Songs. And if any of you have ever read the Song of Songs, your first question is, why? It's got to be one of the weirdest little books, if not the weirdest little book in the whole Bible. So why on earth are we putting ourselves through this kind of misery? Well, simple. It's the Word of God, okay? And secondly, our first priority here at New River Church is to help people enjoy an intimately deep relationship with Jesus Christ, so that you become more like him, so that you can introduce him to the world around you. See, the goal is that our relationship with Jesus is contagious and that it's actually something other people ought to catch. And so that's the power of this little book that's actually buried in the Old Testament. One commentator calls it the most Christ-centered book of the whole Old Testament. Even though the name of Jesus is never mentioned in this book, never, not once, but I agree, Jesus is all over this little book. And by the time we're finished with it in August, I think you're going to be connected with Jesus in a way more deeply and more intimately than you ever imagined possible. So let's do this, right? All right. So to help you in your study, what we've done this summer is I wrote a journal, and if you've not received one, be sure to grab one on your way out. And uh, this is for you for your daily reading, and there's questions, and that'll help you as we go through it. But also, I would encourage you to get a discipleship partner, just somebody to keep tabs with throughout the summer, um, you know, maybe have coffee once in a while, or text, email, phone call, just check in. 
uh, to stay on top of each other through the summer, praying for one another. Your life group is also a very, very important place. I would encourage you to get plugged in there. If you're not part of a group, join a group. Uh, even if you're traveling this summer, I know people are hesitant to become part of a group because, you know, you've got vacation plans, and that's great. Have a great vacation. But can I say this? It, it'd be better to have six weeks than to miss all nine weeks. Amen? Right? So, you know what I mean? Like, so plug in, be a part of it. We need that community to keep us growing, to keep us, uh, you know, on fire. And also, we did something different this time. The journal is available on audio. So I recorded it because I know some people complained. I, I've already heard there's a lot of words, you know? Yeah, and you're right. There's no, there's no pictures or cartoons in here. So some of you might have a hard time with this. And uh, so what I did was I, I, I recorded it as an audio, and, I, and I'm just having fun. I hope you know that. But I mean, so that you know, it might be easier for you to listen to it. And also, the PDF, is, it's a, we turned it into a PDF. It's available on our church app, on our church website. All that to say, there's different ways for you to stay up with things this summer, so you don't have to miss anything, and you can be a part of it. Now, part of what makes the Song of Songs so complicated and it is complicated, is that it's a song. It's literally a song. And you know how like one person can listen to a song and you can think it means one thing, and I can listen to the same song and think that it means something different? You ever had that happen? That's what happens with a song. And the truth is, commentators and scholars over the years, they've argued about the right angle to take with this song over and over and over again. So what I've done is this. I've just taken the three most common ways of interpreting the Song of Songs, and we're going to look at those this summer. We're actually going to take a look at it from three different angles, okay? Um, first today, to get us started, we're going to look at it as the culmination of Solomon's wisdom writings. We're starting this way because it just makes a nice overview. It's a good way to get us into it, and I think that um, it'll be helpful, makes a good intro. And then starting next Sunday, for the rest of June, we're going to be looking at it as an example of Hebrew love poetry. And when you look at it from that angle, it provides some great lessons that apply directly to relationships, to marriage, to dating, and so forth. And I think some of you are really going to like that. And then in the month of July, single people can... Take a breathe of sigh of relief because we're going to switch gears and we'll look at it as an allegory, representing the special relationship that Jesus has with his people, the church. And let me tell you, you have never seen Jesus in this light before. You will be amazed by the way that Jesus feels about you and it'll, it'll, it'll literally change you. I'm excited for that. So does that make sense? And we need to keep those three different interpretive lenses in mind because sometimes I'm going to say something from you know, this inter one interpretive lens and you're going to say, wait a second, but it doesn't. And the truth is it does if you look at it from that angle. You following? So we need to keep the angles all different. And what we're going to find is each one has its own strengths and its weaknesses. And my hope and my prayer is by the end of the summer that you'll, that you'll be like, you know, I kind of like all three interpretive approaches of the Song of Songs because I like it for this reason and for that reason. So if, if that happens, then I've done my job as a teacher, okay? So today, we're going to begin by looking at this 
as the culmination of Solomon's wisdom writings. You ready? Let's go. I uh, blew some time um, with this introduction, so we got to get moving this morning. So, next to God, the second most popular topic discussed among us mortals on earth is love. Wouldn't you agree? Just consider the sheer volume of songs, poems, books, articles, seminars, therapists, all devoted to this topic. Consider, like, there's no other topic that causes us greater joy or greater agina than love. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if you think about it, some of the greatest moments of our lives had to do with love. Your wedding, the birth of your children, maybe your first kiss, maybe the love of a grandparent, maybe the trip of a lifetime with your best friend, et cetera, et cetera. All had love as part of them, but also, equally true, some of the worst moments of our lives were made more painful because of love. A painful breakup, a divorce, a tragic death, an abusive relationship, uh, the betrayal of a best friend, etc. All of these painful uh, moments are made actually more painful because of love. True. Every one of us is impacted positively and negatively by love. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato called love the ultimate truth about the world that has created this insatiable desire for us to know it. The other famous Greek philosopher Socrates, who was Plato's student, called love a madness that has overtaken us all. A madness. I think he was a little twisted. But I don't know that he's far off. We have, we have what we call crimes of passion, do we not? And I think we would all know that we've done some crazy things in the name of love. They might not have been illegal, but they were certainly stupid. True? So, so there is a, a madness, if you will, to love. It drives us nutty, yet at the same time, we can't imagine life without it. Life without it would just not be the same at all. Love has that kind of power. Now, given that love is such a big deal to you and me, and given that we struggle so much with it to understand it and to enjoy it and so forth and to practice it, isn't it gracious and kind that God would put an entire book about love right in the center, in the heart, if you will, of your Bible? I think it's great. In fact, in the very middle of your Bibles, there are five books that we call the five books of wisdom. There are the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. Each of these five books answers a big question that is of primary importance to people everywhere. The, the book of Job answers the question, why is there suffering? Psalms, how do I connect with God? Proverbs, how do I live life well, Ecclesiastes, what is the meaning of life? And the Song of Songs, what's the meaning of love? Isn't it cool? Isn't it cool that the heart of your Bible contains these five books? Like it's almost like God knew that you would have questions like this. So he made the answers easy for us to find. Put them right in the center of your Bible. Now three of these books are attributed to King Solomon. 
who is considered to be one of the wisest, you know, people to have ever lived. Solomon is attributed to, is said to have written the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, which is sometimes called the Song of Solomon. Some scholars think that this order is actually significant, that it's put in this order on purpose. The Proverbs represents a collection of wise sayings that pertain to general issues of life that Solomon gleaned over the years and the decades of him serving as the king of Israel. Ecclesiastes is uh, kind of depressing, but it looks at life from the rearview mirror. We think Solomon probably wrote it in the latter years of his life. So he's an old man, he's looking back, and he's reflecting on the meaning of it all, and he concludes the whole thing's meaningless, unless you know God. If you know God, it all has meaning. If you don't know God, then regardless of how much you accumulate and how much power you have, it's just nothingness. And then the Song of Songs is Solomon's magnum opus. It's thought to be like the best of the best of all that Solomon knew about life and God and love. And he took it and he put it to music. It's a song. Solomon wrote a song, which tells us something. Writing songs about love is not a modern concept. People have been singing about love for a very long time. It also makes sense when you think about the power of music. Let me just do a little experiment, okay? Quick, tell me, what letter comes after a V in the alphabet? Okay, now, be honest. How many of you had to stop and go, wait a second, I know the answer to that question. I really do. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, Q, S, T, U, V, W, W, W is the right answer. It comes after V. That's the power of music. It makes it memorable. It makes it stick with you. So Solomon took everything that he knew about God, life, and love, and he put it to music. And we call it the Song of Songs, which really isn't that creative because uh, it's actually the first word of the song in the Hebrew text. In the Hebrew text, the first two words in Hebrew are literally translated as the song of all songs of Solomon. It's, a, it's an old Hebrew way of saying this is Solomon's favorite jam, literally. So to think of it as the culmination of Solomon's wisdom is not far off because Solomon himself claimed that it was his favorite. So we're not making anything up. A quick glance working through the song actually reveals some very powerful and life-changing truths about love. And this is what I want to hit on today in the rest of the time we have. And uh, then next week, we'll launch into the next interpretive lens. But I've lumped these things together today, the lessons we learn about love, into three colossal lessons that we learn about love from the Song of Songs. Okay, The first truth about love is this, that love is dangerously powerful. And we start with the verse that we looked at at the very beginning, chapter 8, verse 6. We read it. Love is as strong as? How strong is love? As strong as? Death. death. As strong as death. Think about the power of death. This is an interesting word picture. Think about the power of death for a moment. Death affects all of us. And once it gets a hold of a person, it doesn't let go, does it? 
And if, unless you're going to be alive, unless you're alive in the very moment that Jesus returns to earth and takes us to heaven, every one of us is going to find ourselves in a grave at some point. Are we not? Death is, is that powerful. And so the same is true with love, he says, that love is as powerful as death. And we see that the power of love demonstrated in two different ways as we work through the song. The first way that we see the power of love at work is that the power of love is powerful enough to change a person. There are two main characters in the song. You've got a man and a woman. So think about this song as like a duet. You know, there's a, there's a male voice and there's a female voice. And then there's also a third group in the song. They're called the Friends. And think of the Friends as being the backup singers. Like they're the shoe-wop, diddy-wop in the back with the microphone. And so the song, as you read through the song, like that's kind of how it goes. You have the male singing this and the female singing this. And then the Friends pipe in over here, shoe-wop, diddy-wop, right? And you've got that kind of thing. So that's how the song goes as you read it. And in the song, these two main characters then, the female character is some, we don't even know her name, she's called the Shulamite, which is just a, simply a way of saying she's from the town of Shunem, is all that is. It doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything except she's from there. And then the male voice in the song is Solomon. He puts himself in, I mean, he, I guess he wrote the song so he can make himself the hero, right? So Solomon's in there, and so you have Solomon and you have the Shulamite, and they go back and forth. Now the Shulamite, she's a peasant girl. In chapter 1, verse 6, if you've got your Bible open, you're going to need to fly through this with me. I've put them up on the screen, though. That'll help, hopefully. But uh, in Solomon, in verse one, chapter 1, verse 6, she says, Don't stare at me because I'm dark. My brothers made me work in the vineyards. Now, what she's saying, it's not a racial statement. That's not an ethnic statement. That's a social statement. She's dark because she had to work out in the fields. She's got a farmer's tan. Her skin is leathery and tough. And, and back then, the peasants worked in the fields. If you were rich, you had peasants who worked in your fields. That's how that worked. And so she's acknowledging the fact that she's from this peasant class. And she's self-conscious about that. And yet, somehow, the king has fallen in love with her. So if you think about it, it's really an ageless love story, isn't it? It's Cinderella. It's the housemaid that becomes the princess. It's, that's the plot of the Song of Songs. And so the Shulamite is self-conscious about where she comes from, but as the song progresses, his love changes her. His love is so pure and so powerful that she changes from this insecure peasant girl into this confident queen. And by the time you come to the end, we have chapter 8. We read the verse. She's leaning on the arms of her lover. And in chapter 7, verse 10, she confidently says, I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. In essence, she's saying, I got my man. See, she's gone from this insecure girl to confident queen. And what made the difference? The power of love. The second way we see love being so powerful, being powerful in this book, is that love takes over. There, there's, a, there's a little line that gets repeated three times in this song, in the eight chapters, and the line goes like this. Daughters of Jerusalem, 
I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, this is a circumlocution. Do you know what a circumlocution is? It's, it's using a word, it's using a word that means another word so that I can say the other word without actually saying the other word. Circumlocution. In other words, if I go, oh my gosh, it's so cold today. What am I really saying? I'm technically taking the Lord's name in vain. Are I not? I mean, I'm not saying, oh my God. I'm saying, oh my gosh. But I am kind of really am saying, oh my God. Aren't I? See? That's called a circumlocution. It sounds like it, but it's not the actual word. I say the word shoot. You know what word I'm really saying. And this, by the gazelles and does of the field, in Hebrew, it sounds a lot like by the Lord God Almighty. And so what she's saying, this is it, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. That's a strong statement, isn't it? And it's repeated three times. Why? Because once love comes awake, it takes over. We see it happen in dating relationships all the time, don't we? A couple gets together, they, they're friends, and they're really enjoying one another's company as friends, getting to know one another, and then they cross a line. Things become romantic. They begin to give their heart to one another. And what happens? Objectivity goes out the window. Their vision for one another becomes clouded by love. Now, this can be positive because it, it locks us onto one another. That's a good thing, really. But it can also be negative when we overlook traits in the other that we ought to be more discerning about. And we all have been there, and we've all seen examples of it, of someone who begins to make compromises because they're in love with this person, and they should not be making those compromises. Many couples plunge headlong towards the marriage altar only to discover that later they made a huge mistake. What happened? They awakened love too soon in the relationship. We see it playing out another way. Uh, we love the stories of heroes and heroines um, overcoming great odds in the name of love. We've probably heard testimonies, stories of, of like prisoners of war who were able to stay alive because they kept thinking about their family back home. So the love of their family gave them strength to endure the hardship. And of course, we, when we think of this in relationship to Jesus, I mean, come on, is there not a more powerful, greater love than this? I mean, no, no way. In fact, Jesus's love, when you consider it, is more powerful than death because it overcame death, right? So this is the first colossal truth about love from the Song of Songs. It is powerful. The second colossal truth is that love is protective. One of my favorite lines from the song gets repeated three times again, and it starts in chapter 2, verse 16, where the beloved declares, my lover is mine and I am his. And then it gets repeated in chapter 6, verse 3. I am my lover's and my lover is mine. And again, with a slight nuance, in chapter 7, verse 10, the beloved sings, I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. I am his, he is mine. 
In other words, we have each other's backs. We're on the same team. We're in this together through thick and thin. I am his. He is mine. And in chapter 2, verse 4, she sings, he has taken me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. You know, the banner was a flag that the army used to identify itself, and it came in handy, especially in the heat of battle. Because, you know, ancient battle scenes, the battlefield can become chaotic and, and dusty and dirty and crazy. And it'd be easy for a soldier to get disoriented in the course of battle. And so they look, they find, there's my flag. That tells me what team I'm on. I'm over there. And if I can just make it back to that flag, I can make it back to a few friendly faces, you see. That's the significance. And she says, his banner over me is love. What's the flag that we fly over this relationship? Love. In the fray and the chaos of life, it's easy to lose track of our loved one. It is, oh, isn't it? But the banner over our home says we love each other. You know what? It might get crazy out there, but this is where we belong, right here. This is where I'm safe. You with me, me with you, we're in this together. In chapter 6, verse 13, they had just had a conflict. And we'll look at this in a couple of weeks, so we won't get into the conflict. But after resolving the conflict, the lover sings this. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? Now, scholars are not totally certain exactly what this dance of Mahanaim is. There's a number of theories, but one of the strongest theories is this that the dance of Mahanaim was a battle dance. It was a dance that armies would do as they, you know, you're around a bonfire or whatever, you're getting ready for battle, you got to hype up the, the army, get them ready to fight, and that's the dance of Mahanaim. And so <clears throat> what is this lover doing? They've just resolved a conflict, and he says, hey, we're not fighting anymore. Don't, don't, don't anybody look at this. Don't anybody look at her as you would look on the dance of Mahanaim. Listen, we resolved this. It's over. We settled it. Done. We're moving on. See, I'm, I'm protecting her. I'm protecting us from allowing this conflict to just fester and continue to cause trouble in our relationship. It's over. We're not looking on it like we're looking on the dance of Mahanaim. One more thing. I love the imagery in the song. It's so rich. And I love one more. Chapter 7, verse 4. He compliments her in a weird way. I'm pretty sure that none of you guys have ever tried this line on your wives or girlfriends. Here's what he says. And I'm going to say, I'm going to put in the hey baby just to make it, you know. I'm sure that was in the Hebrew. But hey baby, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Huh? Does that not melt your heart, girls? Yes. See? Now, what's going on there? What's he saying? Okay. This is a great time to bring this up because you're going to run into this a lot as we go through the Song of Songs, okay? It's loaded with imagery like this. Now, we think like Westerners. So what we immediately think is he's saying that her nose looks like the Tower of Lebanon. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that this is what you make me feel like. 
And you have to understand that when you're reading the song. All these, or these images are really, really get funny after a while if you think about what they look like. But it's not about what they look like. It's about what you're making me feel like. That's how the ancient Hebrews saw these images. And so what he's saying is this, the Tower of Lebanon, right? It's, it's a tower on the wall of Jerusalem. It's, it's a lookout tower. We're looking out for enemies. And not only that, but she's looking toward Damascus. At this point, Damascus was a seat of power for the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were mortal enemies of the Jews. And so he's saying that she's looking out for the enemies, that she's on guard, that she's vigilant. She's defending and protecting their relationship. And this makes him feel secure and safe. That's what he's saying. That's what love does. It has the power to protect. In love, I protect my wife from outside threats. I do. But in love, I also protect her from myself and my own foolishness. Have you ever noticed that? That the more intimate the relationship, the higher the risk. That I stand, I I could hurt my wife more than anybody else could hurt my wife. And she could hurt me more than anyone else could hurt me. And so the first person that I protect my wife from is me. It's why, it's why, it's why I guard against pornography. It damages my wife. It damages our love. It's why gossip is so wrong. It damages people whom we love, and we need to protect them against it. I'm protecting them. I don't gossip because I want to protect you from my own bad language. It's why, it's why name-calling and put-downs is so bad in a marriage or a friendship, because they tear the other person down. They don't build them up. And love protects the other person. It doesn't tear them down. It doesn't destroy them. It protects them from ourselves as much as it protects them from outside threats. And when I say that Karis is mine, what I'm saying is that I've made a commitment to give everything I am to her and everything I have to her. She's the focus of my giving. She's the focus of my best benevolence. See, this is love. Love is protective. And then the third thing that love is in the Song of Songs is love is persistent. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, always perseveres. You notice the word always, always, always. These two lovers in the song are always in pursuit of one another. I mean, whether, they are, whether they're in the city, or they're in the country, or they're in the vineyard, or they're at home, or they're in public, they are always after each other. Always in constant pursuit. They're always invested in their relationship. Always. They persist through insecurity. We already noted that in chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. The girl says, I'm, don't look at me because I'm, I'm dark. She's self-conscious. And that does not deter his love. He comes back at her by saying, oh, but you are lovely. You are beautiful. You are flawless. In chapter 4, verse 7, he literally says that to her. He says, all beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. You hear that? All beautiful you, all beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. I read that and I think, really? 
no flaw. Not one mole in a weird place, like no flaw. She doesn't leave her hair in the sink. She doesn't have a coffee cup with a coffee stain around it like she leaves it on the table for three days, you know, stays it. Like no flaw whatsoever, none. All beautiful, none, right? That's the truth. What's he doing? He's being persistent, persistent. He's not allowing anything to stop him from loving her, loving his bride. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Could Karis come up with a really long list of all my flaws? Yes, alphabetized and indexed. (laughs) But you think about it, what good would that bring to our relationship? Has anybody ever in history changed their life because somebody brought a long list of their flaws to them and said, change these? No one. No one. But there are plenty of people who have said, wow, you believed in me when I didn't believe in myself, and that made a huge difference. True? Right. And I know that I'm breaking my interpretive lens for a second, you know, we're just for a second, but when you consider this allegorically, I couldn't resist. When you consider this allegorically as representing Jesus and the church, it's pretty crazy. When you think that Jesus would do this with you and me, when you think that, that our flaws ought to chase him away, but instead, he's strangely drawn to us in our flaws. You know, <clears throat> your flaws are what make you beautiful to God. I mean, you see them plain as day, right? I know I see mine, oh my, plain as day. I see them as a deficiency, and God sees me as delightful. God is like smitten by you. He persists in his love for you. We, saw, we also see this couple persisting through conflict. We already mentioned that a moment ago, but there's another scene in chapter 2, kind of another type of conflict that gets, there's two, two conflicts that get resolved through the song, and this is the first conflict, essentially, where he invites her to go deeper with him in relationship, and she doesn't want to go. In chapter 1, she's insecure about her looks. In chapter 2, she still does not quite trust him. And in chapter 2, he calls her a, quote, dove in the cleft of the rocks, meaning she's hiding from him. She's up there hidden, and and he can't get to her. He's he's trying trying to get her to open up. He's trying to draw close, and she's hidden up in the cleft of the rocks, he says. And what does he do? He gently encourages her to draw her out, and even then she refuses. Yet does this chase him away? Not at all. He's persistent. He stays. And in chapter 3, her heart becomes broken that she refused to go with him, that she refused to open up to him. And so in chapter 3, verse 2, she says, I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. What's she doing? She's pushing past her own insecurity for the sake of the relationship. She's persisting. She realizes that she was the one who put, up the, put on the brakes, that she was the one who put up the roadblock, and she repents and she persisted in reaction and response to his persistence. In chapter 2, verse 8, there's a kind of funny picture. She says of him, she says, Listen, my lover, look, here he comes. 
leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. I like that picture. I just can picture him, you know, coming to, coming to get a hug or something. He's leaping across the hills, you know. He can hear the hills are alive with the sound of music, and they're having a grand old time. So that's kind of what I picture in my crazy head. What's the point of all this, though? The point is love is persistent. Love is persistent. Love is not passive. Love is proactive. That's, that's the point. Love is proactive. Um, listen, girls, I got a bit of advice for you. <clears throat> if you're dating a guy and you have to do all of the planning and you have to do all the organizing and if you have to be the one to pursue him and convince him to do stuff together, you need to break up. If you're dating and you're not both pursuing each other, if you're not both making plans to be together, if you're not both making this relationship a priority, see, if you're not both working together to grow in your relationship with Jesus, then something is terribly wrong and you need to put on the brakes. Why? Because it means only one of you is in love. The other is just along for the ride. Love pursues. Love continues pursuing. It's persistent. That's what love does. And in marriage, the same thing. I can tell when our love is waning in marriage by the lack of pursuit. When you say you judge it that way, I can tell when things have cooled off, if you will, in our marriage, when we kind of just don't pay as much attention. We get a little sloppy, a little lazy in our pursuit of one another. Why? Because love pursues. Love is persistent. That's what it does. And you know what? In marriage, it's possible. You get busy. You got kids. You got jobs. You got bills. You got stuff to do. There's always stuff to do, isn't there? It's easy, easy to put the relationship on the back burner. And if you're not careful, you, you can grow old and just become little more than just roommates. So in fact, I got a little exercise for you. Just take a second and later on, make a list of what you actually do together as a couple. Like, what do we actually do together? Together as a couple. The chances are good that if you've been married a long time, you're doing less things together than you used to. Because that seems to be the nature of things. After years of marriage, you still love each other. I know you would say that you love each other. I know you do. So then pick up the pursuit of each other. Start making each other a priority. Start chasing after each other. Like this couple does in the Song of Songs. Go after each other. Pursue. The lover, the lover pursues the beloved always. And so this is what we come to. These are the three colossal truths about love that we find in the book of the Song of Songs. You find that love is powerful, love is protective, and love is persistent. And what do you get? When you experience the power and the protection and the persistence of love, you get trust. That's what you get. And that's what we see as the Song of Songs comes to an end. It ends where we began this morning in chapter 8, verse 5. And she is leaning on the arm of her beloved. She's leaning. It's a key word. Leaning. It's a, it's a picture of trust. 
It's a picture of security, see? She is, she is his, and he is hers, see? And they've gone through some stuff together, and this trust has been developed and built, and now they're there together, one heart, one mind. So according to Solomon and his song of all songs, his favorite song, what would Solomon say is the meaning of love? I think the answer would be this, that love doesn't really have a meaning because by it, everything else has meaning. See, love is not a noun. Love is a verb. So you can't really define it. You define it by what it does. Love does something. And the Song of Songs illustrates what it does. It, it, it's powerful. It's protective. It's persistent. Many years after Solomon, many, many years after Solomon, the Apostle Paul wrote, and now abides faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Yeah. Think about that. Greater than the faith to believe that Jesus is the Savior, greater than faith, greater than hope, the hope that would defy the odds and lift me up against the worst of circumstances, greater than that hope, love. Greater than faith, greater than hope, love. Um, There's one more character in the song, and we don't see him. He doesn't sing as well. There's one section where he has a singing part, but that's it. But he's definitely there, giving his blessing to the whole thing, and it's God. This, this song represents God's heart for you and me. Worship team, you can come if you want, Karis. It represents God's heart for you and me. And I, and I love this part. Because if you think about it, this song is your song. This is your life. It's my life. Are we not the Shulamite? We're the peasant girl who has caught the eye of the king. Have we not? And are you not amazed by that? Like sometimes I think to myself, God, why? What do you see in me that would draw you to me? I mean, God, you're God and I'm me. Like that, that's not possible. How is it possible? that you caught his eye, that I caught his eye, and yet, and yet we did, right? That's, the Shulamite story is our story. And, and do we not sometimes go, oh God, don't look at me, I'm dark. And we, and we have our excuses, like Shulamite did, my brothers made me work in the vineyard. That was her excuse. What are your excuses? Oh God, don't look at me, I'm dark, you know? Well, my mom, she did this when I was a kid. My dad, you know, he was absent. That's, that's why I'm this way. You know, I had a teacher that did this. That's why I'm this way. Right? We have reasons. We have our excuses for why we do the things that we've done and so forth. And just like the Shulamite did. And how does Jesus respond to those excuses? Does he say, oh, that's just an excuse? Does he chide you for your excuses? No. He just continues to love you. just keeps loving you and his love is powerful enough to change you over time just like it did for the Shulamite in the Song of Songs 
to bring us to the place eventually like we read in chapter 8 where we are leaning on his arms trusting feeling secure at rest in his arms no longer worried about my flaws I'm focused on him and us together that's where he's taken us that's the power of his love and you say yeah but I still have these voices that keep playing over and over and over in my head voices of shame voices that tell me yeah but voices that remind me of what I did one time and yeah you're not worthy and you don't cut it and, and look at you're a you're a goober look at that you look you're such a you're such a whatever right you, we have these voices right Yes, but then you experience the protective love of Jesus where he says, you're my flawless one. You are lovely. Isn't that something? See, he sees us through his own blood. And so, yes, it's true. Jesus sees you with rose-colored glasses stunning and when you're doing your best to tear yourself down and when hell is doing its best to tear you down Jesus love is protective and he stands there as your intercessor as your lover saying oh no you are flawless yeah but I'm no you are flawless And then you say, yeah, but I still don't trust you. I mean, I got my issues. I got trust issues. I've fallen for so many scams and schemes over the years. I mean, it's kind of hard. I mean, it sounds too good to be true that someone like Jesus would love someone like me. I can't. And then you experience the persistence of his love. Faithful, rock solid, never letting you go. You let him go a gazillion times in your life, and he never let you go. Isn't that amazing? His love is persistent. And so the power of Christ's love, the protection of Christ's love, the persistence of Christ's love, those three things come together in your life and mine, and they enable us to trust him. They change us. Change us. And my prayer is that by the time we're finished with this song in August, that every single one of us will not just like understand that mentally, but that we'll really own it, you know, in our heart. This morning, maybe you're here, you haven't even, you, you never thought that something like this was possible. that Jesus is here for you and he really likes you and he wants you you might not even want yourself but he wants you please hear that if there's one overwhelming message to the song of songs it's that God really likes you isn't that awesome and it's cool that he would put it 
in the very heart of your Bible. So when you open up to the heart of the Bible, you see the heartbeat of God and you discover it's beating for you. Thank you, Jesus, so much for your love for us. Really, we are stunned by it. And we do ask that question often. Why? Why, Lord, why would you choose me? And yet you have, and, and I believe you. I'm thankful, Jesus, for your powerful love, for your protective love, and for your persistent love in my life. And for the way that it has changed me, God. And Lord, I pray that each one of us here would become fully convinced of that truth today. And I ask this in your holy name, Jesus, amen. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We hope that today's message was a blessing to you. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. 